Today on Question Period, crossing the red line. Please close the sky, close the airspace. Please stop the bombing. As Russia's ruthless war continues, NATO refuses Ukrainian President Zelensky's plea for a no-fly zone, saying it will lead to a world war. So why are the conservatives now calling for a no-fly zone? The interim leader of the Conservative Party, Candace Bergen, joins us on that. Plus, defeating Putin. How far is the Russian leader ready to go as he gets backed in a corner? We'll speak with retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He's the man who was instrumental in the impeachment of Donald Trump over the Ukraine scandal. Then, refugee rush. I won't cry because uh, my husband uh, stayed uh, in Ukraine and I don't know uh, when I uh, hear, hear him, uh, see him. With millions of refugees fleeing Ukraine, is Canada doing enough to take people in quickly? And is Canada preparing its military by increasing spending? We'll speak with the Immigration, Refugee and Citizenship Minister, Sean Fraser. Then, clash of conservatives. Patrick Brown will say and do anything. It's nasty, it's divisive, and it's just starting. But when leading candidates dismiss others as liars and liberals, is the scorched earth policy helpful to that party? We'll dig into the conservative leadership race on the Scrum. I'm Evan Solomon. Let's go get some answers. Despite heavy sanctions and strong condemnation from much of the world, Russia continues its lethal attacks on Ukrainian cities. It has been nearly four weeks since Russia's unprovoked and illegal war began, and shelling is general throughout the country. Russian troops continue to pound the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, including civilian targets, and they've recently moved to the west of the country, targeting the outskirts of the western city of Lviv. That's, of course, close to the Polish border, with Poland being a member of NATO. Is there any sign of de-escalation? Joining us now with the latest is CTV's Joy Melbourne. She is in Lviv. Evan, there is more horror coming from that city that is suffering most. Mariupol's mayor says that Russia has bombed an art school where 400 people, including children, were sheltering. But there is fierce street fighting and the constant shelling is preventing any kind of rescue. And we still don't know if there are any more survivors from that theater that was bombed just four days ago. 130 people, as far as we know, have made it out alive. Now, President Zelensky said in his nightly video address that the Russian brutal tactics of terrorizing people is a war crime that will be remembered for centuries. However, there was some good news. More than 6,000 Ukrainians were able to evacuate through eight humanitarian corridors on Saturday. But now this, this is terrifying. Some evacuees say that they were being taken to Russia against their will. Some have said that they have been shot at. And there are reports that young men are being rounded up by the Russians. As for those peace talks, a Ukrainian advisor says the process could drag on for weeks, maybe more. Ukraine won't give away territory seized by Russia. Switzerland now is offering to act as a mediator. And at some point, Evan, the loss of life will become so great that this just will have to end. Evan. Okay, thanks, Joy. That's CTV's Joy Malbin reporting from Lviv. As the world watches Ukraine, the spotlight also will be on Brussels later this week. That's where NATO will be hosting what it calls an extraordinary summit on Thursday, and Prime Minister Trudeau and U.S. President Joe Biden will be among those attending. This week's critical meeting comes after Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky gave an emotional address 
to various governments, but including, of course, the Canadian Parliament. Can you imagine when you call your friendly nation and you ask, please close the sky? Close the airspace. Please stop the bombing. How many more cruise missiles have to fall on our cities until you make this happen? But a no-fly zone remains a no-go zone for NATO. We see death, we see destruction, we see human suffering in Ukraine, but this can become even worse if NATO uh, took actions that actually turned it in, in, this into a full-fledged war between uh, NATO and, uh, and Russia. But despite those warnings, the Conservative Party in Canada is suddenly changing course, and now they're also pushing for a NATO-enforced no-fly zone of some kind. Are they concerned about this widening into a bigger world war, and is it time for Canada to increase its military spending? Let's find out. Joining me now is the interim Conservative leader, Candace Bergen. Good to have you on the program. Uh, look, NATO continues to say a no-fly zone is a no-go, and, and that should happen, I think, in the Brussels meeting. They don't look like they're going to move on that. But you have now called for a no-fly zone over humanitarian corridors. So, so be specific. How would that work? Well, we, I actually did not use the words, nor did I say no-fly zone, although I will say this. I, I don't think anything should be off the table. I don't think NATO should take anything off the table. But what we called for, and what I said in my, uh, in my comments when President Zelensky was speaking to Parliament, is that a minimum, at a minimum, the human, uh, humanitarian corridors should be protected. Uh, and uh, obviously it's up to uh, experts and, and others to talk about and decide what's the best way to protect those corridors is it by protecting the airspace or it could be by better equipping the ukrainians themselves but our point is we we don't believe canada uh, or the world should just be throwing up our hands and saying that there's nothing that we could do so we believe that there should be protection for those humanitarian corridors look at putin, putin himself said that he was going to leave them alone and so I, I i think that it would make sense that the world would say well putin said he was going to and not be killing innocent people while they're trying to escape and leave Ukraine, then they should be protected. Okay, but how? Uh, your uh, ethics critic, former defense critic James Bazan, is open. He said, look, it's either jets in the sky um, uh, or it's uh, providing uh, MiG-29s to uh, the Ukraine so they can do it. But NATO has been clear. They say, look, that's a red line. That will lead to a world war. That will mean shooting down Russian jets. That'll mean shooting at Russian missile sites, which are located on Russian soil. So I'm just, because you know Vladimir Putin has violated all those agreements. Are you prepared for that eventuality, that NATO forces somehow would have to take, to protect those, means NATO has to shoot down either Russian jets or take out Russian missile sites in Russia? There, well, there's precedent for humanitarian corridors uh, in war zones to be protected. Uh, and I, I don't think that I'm the only one saying this. There, there are others that have said that it's something that should be discussed and that is doable. So what we're just suggesting is that Canada, uh, at least in the discussions, whether it's behind the scenes or whether it's uh, overtly and vocally, talk about the idea and talk about how we can protect protect men and women and children, right. uh, especially who are trying to escape But, but how would it work? I'm just, I'm, again, well, do I, you I have agree. a red note? But what's your I red absolutely. line? I, I'm just trying to figure it out because, I, listen, it's heart-wrenching to see this. No one's yeah. 
it's gut-wrenching, and these are wicked moral choices, we all know. So I'm not suggesting this is an easy one. But I'm just asking, did, is there a red line here? Like, do the Conservatives support the NATO position? No NATO jets in the sky, no NATO boots on the ground, or are you saying, actually, let's revisit that for humanitarian corridors? I don't think NATO should take anything off the table at this point. And I, and I certainly don't think NATO should be announcing what they will or will not, will not do to Putin. I, I just don't think that's the best strategy. Uh, so I do agree with James Bazan. I think that whether, uh, ideally, Ukraine would be able to shoot them down themselves, but they need to be supplied with, uh, with those missiles to be able to do that. So that would be obviously ideal, but if they can't, there's got to be other ways that NATO or other allies can help to protect women and children, especially who are trying to escape. The NATO Secretary General has also called on allies to spend a minimum of 2% of GDP on defense. Canada spends 1.39 currently. Um, in your view, in this budget that is coming up in April, is it time for Canada to, to promise to hit the target of 2% of spending on GDP? It is. And, you know, I think it's fair to say all governments have failed, uh, Canadian governments have failed at, at spending that target. But the world is changing so quickly. And in light of what's happening in Ukraine, uh, I, I believe all parties would be able to get behind. At least I can tell you conservatives very much support that. But, you know, it doesn't help to just announce it and then not do anything. Uh, the Liberals are behind, I think, about $10 billion in the promises that they've made to, uh, to fund our defense. And they haven't spent that. So it's one thing to make promises. It's another to do it. And we very much would support uh, better spending, more spending for our men and women in uniform. Let me just speak, if I can, about the Conservative leadership race. Um, so we've got a, obviously a war going on in the world, but there's a, a political battle here at home. Uh, it's a nasty race so far. Uh, what do you make of the fact that you've got Mr. Pauly Ever calling, you know, uh, Patrick Brown a liar and, and dismissing Jean Charest as a liberal. Uh, does that hurt the party? Does the, do these kind of divisions and this open attack ads hurt your party? Well, my goal as the leader during the interim is to bring our caucus together, have a united caucus, and we are very strong and united. Uh, my goal is to ensure that conservatives are proud to be conservative and that we are consistently conservative in how we approach uh, policy and things that are happening. So I would say I, I hope that the candidates, they criticize each other's record, they criticize each other's policy. I think that's fair game. But I, I hope that they don't say bad things about each other. Just like Ronald Reagan said, it's, it's not a good thing to say bad things about other conservatives. Well, they At are. The the By the way, too late. Yes. They, they've obviously forgot the Ronald Reagan dictum because they're saying bad things <laughs> about each other. You know it. They need to be reminded uh, of that, definitely. Because, listen, I, I think that uh, conservative... Uh, members and people who are thinking of buying conservative memberships uh, want to hear people's ideas. They want to hear what the candidates are going to be presenting. And so my encouragement to them is to, to stick to policy. There is a sense that there's a battle for what kind of conservative party it is. This happens after every leadership race. Is it a center-right? Is it a populist party? But look, we've just come, we're in this war now, but before that, we had the trucker protests. And a lot of your party members, including you, were outspoken about supporting the, the, the leaders of the trucker convoy, not only the trucker convoy themselves. Do you regret you personally supporting uh, the movement that involved the leadership who were advocating not only for illegal blockades, but at one point, the leaders of that who were collecting the money were advocating overthrowing the government. Was that a mistake? Listen, I had many constituents actually in Ottawa. They wanted Justin Trudeau to listen to them. These are hardworking men and women. 
who were tired of the overreach, the vaccine mandate overreach, which, by the way, continues with this government. All they wanted was the prime minister to listen to them. Instead, he divided, he wedged, and he stigmatized. I told them they needed to move the trucks. Obviously, they uh, should not, and, and they, they moved the blockades that were uh, at the border. Uh, we don't agree with any illegal activity, but listen. But did you nurture it? I guess that's my question. But no, is that, I, is that I, did, did you no, support it all along, and now you're saying that? Story. That that just doesn't that, that doesn't ring true. It's an, it's it's something that um, some say if you support someone's idea, then that means you support their behavior. And I, and I just disagree. I reject that. I absolutely support. In fact, right now we are trying very hard to ask the government when are they going to end the re the restrictions and the mandates. And we don't think this government should continue to govern. And when we have an election, we hope that they are tossed out by the Canadian people. So um, I agree with many of the things that the protesters came to Ottawa to talk to the prime minister about. He didn't listen to them. He called them names. And I think calling them names, wedging, mischaracterizing what they are doing was the wrong thing to do, okay, whether just, it was for doing it or some in the media. And I wasn't going to be part of that. There will be a budget coming up. If, for example, the Liberals come up with uh, a big dollar figure on defense, I don't know if they hit the 2% or not, but billions of dollars to spend on defense, um, will that be enough for Conservatives to support a budget? Is there a red line on defense spending that you need to see? Yes, we want to see increase in defense spending, but we also want to see a break for Canadians uh, in, in terms of the uh, the taxes that are being uh, burdened on them. Right now we have huge uh, high inflation, it's almost 6%. I can tell you we want to see the government do something to get their spending un, uh, under control uh, in terms of uh, massive spending for pro pet, some of their pet projects, but in the wrong areas. And we need to see Canadians get a break. Um, we've got some ideas actually we're going to be putting forward this week. We're going to ask the government if they will consider. We're going to put forward uh, an idea that we think is, is doable. If they would consider giving Canadians uh, a GST, HST holiday on gas prices. So we're going to ask the government if they would even do that ahead of the budget. But those are, those are some of the things we'll be looking for. Okay, as inflation is a big issue, uh, an ask coming from the Conservatives on that. Interim Conservative leader Candace Bergen, great to have you on the program. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Good to see you. All right, coming up, stopping Putin. How far is Russian President Vladimir Putin willing to go to win the war? And how far should NATO go to stop him? Retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who testified before U.S. Congress over the Trump-Ukraine scandal, which was critical to Trump's impeachment, joins us next with his view. Stay right here with Question Period. How far will Vladimir Putin go? That is the main question as Russia's invasion of Ukraine increases in brutality but decreases in progress. Russia clearly badly underestimated the Ukrainian military and the swift and coordinated response from the West and overestimated its own ability to sweep to some kind of quick victory. But now what? If Putin is backed into a corner, is he more dangerous? And should NATO now risk establishing some kind of no-fly zone to stop the slaughter of civilians, or would that lead to a world war? Look, NATO is set to host an extraordinary summit this coming Thursday, and these are the key questions on the table. But one man with a unique and direct insight into fighting Russia and supporting Ukraine and its president, Vladimir Zelensky, is retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. 
he got international attention back in 2019 when he testified before the U.S. Congress. Well, the Iraq War vet, he won a Purple Heart, was the director for the European Affairs for the United States National Security Council. Vindman, of course, was in the room for President Trump's infamous phone call to President Zelensky, in which Trump pressured Zelensky to open an investigation into Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden in exchange for military aid. It was Vindman's testimony that helped lead to Donald Trump's impeachment. I was concerned by the call. What I heard was inappropriate. It is improper for the President of the United States to demand a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen and a political opponent. But how far should the West go to help Ukraine, and how far is Putin willing to go? Let's find out. Joining me now is retired Lieutenant Colonel uh, Alexander Vindman. Sir, thanks for your service, and I appreciate you joining us. Uh, back in December, you predicted in a New York Times article that Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, was going to happen. My, the question on everybody's mind, especially with this NATO meeting coming up on Thursday, is how far is Vladimir Putin willing to go? What is your assessment of him? Well, certainly he wants to rally his people around the, the boogeyman of NATO, uh, a NATO aggression. But that's, that's an important rhetorical tool for him to maintain power, maintain control of, of the elites, uh, focusing uh, focus them in on an external enemy. But he is not interested in, in pushing and poking uh, towards a provocation or in a war with uh, NATO. Uh, he's already bogged down in Ukraine. Uh, his forces are facing significant challenges. On the battlefield, facing a much more capable and powerful NATO is not something that he's interested in doing right now. Well, if that's the case, why is there a red line on a no-fly zone? President Zelensky, as you know, and you know him well, continues to plead for a NATO-enforced no-fly zone, even for humanitarian corridors. If Putin is just using rhetoric, why is NATO so fearful of doing that to protect lives? Because uh, from my experience in government, uh, one of the things I learned is that uh, when the Russians start to saber rattle, when they start to signal uh, a risk of escalation, we always go to our worst case scenario of a, of a nuclear war. So we go all the way up the escalatory ladder to, to a nuclear war instead of recognizing that Russia also has no interest in nuclear war. They just have an interest in messaging a nuclear war. Now, the reason that they don't want to do that, that is because they fully understand, comprehend the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, we should think about risks as probability and consequence. The consequence can be catastrophic, but the probability of, of an outcome is extremely, extremely low. Uh, so we should be making decisions based on that basis. So are you saying it's worth the risk to establish a no-fly zone? I, I'm saying it's worth the risk to help the Ukrainians establish a no-fly zone. Uh, I fear that we very well may get to the point where NATO uh, is compelled by the population, by our leaders, based on the brutality on the ground uh, to, to act. That could be weeks or months down the road as Russia's uh, atrocities against the population continue to unfold. My, my prescription is actually more thoughtful and mindful. Why do we not, uh, why do we just simply avoid that question, that difficult challenge, and arm the Ukrainians to establish their own no-fly zone? That means the aircraft that they're asking for the combat uh, aerial vehicles that they're asking for, the uh, air defense vehicles they're asking for, they could do it on their own. They just need to be equipped. S sir, you cite the, mutually, the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, which has been sort of the Cold War doctrine. That is kind of predicated on two rational actors. You kill us, we'll kill you. That's your kind of defense. Right. There's a lot of questions whether Vladimir Putin is a rational actor at this point. What's your assessment? 
So I think he's a rational actor. He's uh, been bred to operate in a particular way from 22, 22 years of power and the ability to achieve his aims through uh, increased pressure, through doubling down, through um, you know more belligerent actions. And now he's basically hit a wall and uh, he's, he's not quite sure how to respond to this. Uh, he's, he's not quite sure with the, what to do with the fact that there's uh, starting to be a simmering unrest in his own population. The fact that he, his military has not been able to achieve its aims, uh, that's something that he's, he's, uh, he's trying to re consider, think through in detail. You, you can see that unfolding in the fact that um, military leadership is starting to get switched out. He fired a, a couple of his uh, senior generals. Uh, he's imprisoned elements of the um, uh, FSB, the security services there. So I think this is this is just going to be uh, a learning process for him, something that has not been the case for for 20 years that he he's been able to get away with um, with his actions without consequence. You know, when you were working in the Trump uh, during the Trump administration, Donald Trump said NATO is irrelevant, and I know he reluctantly ended up giving um, weapons to Ukraine. But after first uh, that fateful phone call that you spoke about. Um, Tell me about, uh, did that weaken the NATO alliance and did that in any way encourage this uh, Russian invasion? To me, there's no question that, that there's a straight line, um, a, a logic link between the events, uh, between the Russian scandal and today. Um, certainly, there, President Trump undermined the, this, the rhetoric around our ironclad support to Ukraine and then, of course, the, the perceptions around divisions between the U.S. and, and NATO uh, and internal to the U.S., these were all critical in terms of the kinds of uh, calculations that Vladimir Putin was making in determining whether to launch this war. And uh, uh, you know, President Trump bears a huge amount of uh, responsibility for that. He has blood on his hands. Uh, he, he, in fact, encouraged Putin all the way to the last hours before this war by touting him and, and cheerleading for him. So, Last question is, sir, what's the way out? Uh, there's, there's peace talks. No one knows if they're shams or not. Uh, is Putin backed in a corner? Does he lash out or does he back down? What is the golden bridge of retreat for him if he needs one? Or does he continue? In your view, what's the way out here? So the way out is really um, uh, decisive military defeat for Putin in the short term. I think in the, if we don't help Ukraine, uh, there's going to be a kind of incrementalism and a, a um, favor towards uh, this standard practice for Vladimir Putin of incrementally ratcheting up pressure. We could see chemical weapons strikes unfold and things of that nature. So I think to me, um, the way out is we give Ukraine what it needs to obstruct Russia, a Russian military from achieving their objectives. They grind down the Russian military quickly including air power and cruise missile strikes. And on that basis, uh, Putin is compelled to negotiate because he just doesn't have the, the means to achieve uh, his aims through force. Well, we'll find out what happens. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right, when we come back, the humanitarian crisis grows. Canada launches its visa program for Ukrainian refugees, but how is it working so far? And will Canada increase its military spending in an upcoming budget? The Immigration Minister Sean Fraser joins us with new details on all that. Stay right here with Question Period. It is the biggest humanitarian crisis in Europe since the Second World War. 
But is the response from Canada big enough to meet the challenge? Look, since the war began nearly four weeks ago, more than three million refugees have fled Ukraine. These numbers are staggering. Well, how has Canada done? On Thursday, the Canadian government opened a new emergency travel authorization process that is supposed to make it easier for refugees to come to Canada. Under the new program, Ukrainians will be able to stay in Canada now for three years instead of two, with processing expected to be completed within two weeks. But the federal government still isn't answering the opposition's calls for visa-free travel into Canada. Will the Liberal government drop that requirement? And how is the program working so far? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Minister, Sean Fraser. This is a, obviously, a, almost an extraordinary, unimaginable crisis. Let's just get the hard numbers. How many refugees from the war have actually managed to come to Canada and get settled? And the last update that I saw uh, was about 48 hours ago, and the numbers at that point in time uh, from January 1st uh, until then uh, was uh, just a little north of 9,000 people who'd already arrived. Uh, nearly that many, again, had uh, submitted applications to come to Canada and are being processed on an expedited basis. Uh, we're going to watch very closely in the days ahead now the new platform is launched uh, to see if there's a potential increase under the new expedited system with fewer requirements to entry. Uh, so we're watching it closely, but the early signs are that the system is working, large numbers of people are applying, and more importantly, large numbers of people are actually arriving in Canada. Yeah, and I know those sound like large numbers, and they are in a short period of time, but they're not large compared to the 3 million refugees. Um, it just seems like some people were expecting tens and tens of thousands of people to come, especially with our Ukrainian diaspora here. Um, I, I guess, on the other hand, we could ask why so few and why, why, where are those sort of plane loads of folks that, that really need a permanent place to live? Yeah, look, I think it's really important that we put this into perspective. Typically speaking, when you're dealing with a refugee resettlement initiative that involves tens of thousands of people or more, it's the kind of thing that takes place over a number of years. Syria, there's now approximately 80,000 uh, refugees that have come to Canada over five or six years. Uh, Afghanistan, we're welcoming 40,000 over a two-year period. Uh, the reality is that I've never seen uh, something like this in terms of the numbers of people coming from a single destination to Canada for a humanitarian purpose. I expect the numbers are going to continue to climb. And despite the fact that we all want to do as much as we can, as quick as we can, the true success of this effort will be known over months and years when we can uh, say that we've provided safe haven to a significant number of people. Uh Visa-free travel. Opposition continues to call for it. You and I have spoken about it for weeks. Uh, I remember two weeks ago you said it would take two weeks to get that done. Well, it's been two weeks. Is that on the table? Is that an option? So when I, I talked about visa-free travel because it was going to require updates to IT systems and potential regulatory changes, the timeline would have been 12 to 14 weeks. Instead, we've been able to stand up a different system that's expedited in a matter of two weeks that is live now. We're not looking at right now at waiving the visa requirement because there is still one important criteria that we're requiring, and that's people complete the biometric scan uh, to protect uh, uh, security and when we know there's pro-Russian fighters in the Donbass region who could potentially be eligible if we had a full visa waiver. Is the federal government working with provinces to, to, to find a way to support the refugees once they're here, health care, housing, education? Uh, so one of the things that's important to understand is when we issue an open work permit to people who then work in Canada, they're automatically eligible to have health care costs uh, covered when they okay. move to, uh, to a Canadian province. 
There are some individuals who may choose not to do that, and we're having conversations with them right now about what form of support that's going to take on. I think you can appreciate the priority for the last number of weeks has been to design a program that gets people here as quickly as possible. The conversations we're having right now are to figure out how to make sure they don't just get here, but they're supported so they can succeed when they're in Canada. There have been some programs in the UK, as you know, that the federal, the, the government there is paying people to take in some refugees, right? They're actually saying, you know what, if you take in a refugee family, we'll help with the economic support. Is that on the table? Uh, everything is on the table right now. Uh, we're looking at different options right now to capitalize on the extraordinary goodwill of, uh, of Canadians. I think I mentioned to you in a previous interview, my, my own mom said she'd take six. And that's typical from the response I'm seeing from my own community and communities right across Canada. We're working with nonprofit partners, with other ministries across government to determine how we can best coordinate that goodwill and how the federal government can play a supportive role to okay. maximize those kinds of offers. So, so just to be clear, so you wouldn't rule out a tax credit for people who are taking in a refugee family or even an income support? Uh, I wouldn't rule out uh, rule out anything right now. We just want to make sure that we tailor the solutions for the needs of the people who are coming. The cause of the refugee crisis is the war itself. There's a key NATO summit coming up on Thursday. The Prime Minister is going to be there. He's flying to Brussels to do that. Um, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, again is calling for NATO countries to increase defense spending to the, the, the level Canada has agreed but never met, 2% of our uh, GDP. The defense minister has said, well, she's got to increase it. Is your government committed to reaching its own agreed upon goal of 2% of GDP on defense spending? Currently, the level is 1.39. We're going to be reviewing the uh, the different options that Minister Anand is going to uh, present uh, very soon. Uh, I want to make sure that I have a full opportunity to understand the different cases. Um, it's important that we don't spend money just for the sake of spending money. It's important that we target those investments in ways that are going to right. allow us to make sure we can meet the security needs of, of Canada and to support the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, so we'll have more to say, obviously, in, in the days and weeks ahead on but, I mean, spending money just to spend money. I mean, we have needs in the Navy. We have needs in the North. We have, you know, we haven't procured a, a jet fighter. The defense minister said basically Canada's exhausted its surplus military inventory in terms of sending lethal aid to Ukraine. Uh, and so we can't make any more withdrawals without harming can the Canadian Armed Forces' own inventory for operational readiness. Isn't that a sign that the trough is empty, that we've got to invest more? I think it is a sign that we need to invest more, but I just to, you, you've, you've made my argument for me. I think I want to make sure that we understand those are the specific kinds of things that we're investing in to ensure that we're investing in our military and in the, the Canadian Armed Forces to meet the security needs of Canadians, but whether it's the, uh, the activities of the forces in Canada uh, or activities we may participate abroad, uh, to understand the specific cost of the kinds of things that will ensure we have the capabilities we need is, is an exercise we're in the midst of. Uh, at present. All right, I got to leave it there this morning. Obviously, big uh, NATO meeting again and, and lots of work on the refugee file. Um, Minister Sean Fraser, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Pleasure as always, Evan. All right, still to come clash of conservatives. Is the race to lead the Conservative Party already revealing divisions in a party that will be hard to heal? What is the nasty race candidates calling each other liars say about the direction of the party? We'll dig into all that next on the Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. Knives Out, superb movie, but now also the conservative leadership race coming soon to a ballot box near you. Longtime MP and former minister Pierre Polyevre called former MP and now mayor of Brampton, Patrick Brown, a liar. 
He also dismisses former progressive conservative leader, former minister in the Mulroney government, and former premier of Quebec, Jean Charest, as a liberal. Then Brown says Mr. Polyevra supports the infamous barbaric practices hotline, and on it goes, and that was all just in the first week. There are now actually seven declared candidates in that race. And new to the race this past week, MP Scott Etchison. He is the former mayor of Huntsville, Ontario, and Saskatchewan business person and anti-vax promoter Joseph Burgot. Well, what direction is the party already going? And what does this nasty race say about the party right now? The Scrum is here to break down the early parts of this race. Joyce Napier is our CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Stephanie Levitz is a Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star. And our special guest this round is Adrian Batra, the Editor-in-Chief of the Toronto Sun and the former Press Secretary to the late Toronto Mayor Rob Ford. Good to see everybody on a Sunday morning. Adrian Batra, Pierre Polyever, widely seen as the front runner. He has the most uh, MP support. But what's your assessment of the strategy mm -hmm. of, of beginning in the first week, launching a series of very divisive, very nasty attack ads at Mr. Charest and Mr. Brown. You know, it's interesting. When we go back a few weeks now to uh, Mr. Polyev's launch video, there was a, you know, that sort of, there was a little hope and it was a bit more positive, but you've seen a shift and a tone change. Definitely, I, I think in the last couple of weeks, certainly Conservative Party supporters that we've been talking to have been saying they don't like it. They find that, you know, we're they're just giving all the opposition research, of course, to the Liberals. You know, party politics is, is uh, and running for leadership, that's usually the playbook for for everybody that, that's inevitable but what i think um the challenge here is it has been very negative very divisive and if you look broadly beyond just the leadership and no, going into a general election uh canadians generally don't like that steph what's your sense of this you've been covering this uh, a lot you got paulie ever's negative ads then you got the charade launch Patrick Brown comes in and, and the three of them are the main contenders sort of going at it. What does what the first early part of the race tell you about their strategies? So a couple of things. I mean, we have Pierre Polyev widely considered to be the darling of the political grassroots of the party, which is to say the existing card carrying membership of the Conservative Party. Those are the folks he's trying to get on side first and foremost. Then coming into the mix, you have Jean Charest and Patrick Brown, both making a similar claim in different ways, which is that their job is going to be to grow the party, to appeal to more people. That's in some way political campaign code for selling more memberships and getting people on side to vote for them. So what's interesting about all of them, though, I find, compared to sort of what was happening in the last leadership race, which, you know, seems like five minutes ago, was that in, in that campaign, the two frontrunners, Aaron O'Toole, and Peter McKay were running very different campaigns. Aaron O'Toole was running a grassroots-oriented campaign. Peter McKay was trying to run for prime minister. Aaron O'Toole's campaign bit him in the end when he had to try and pivot to win a general election. Running a general election campaign in a leadership race doesn't win you the leadership. And I think we're seeing all of the candidates now try to walk up both of those lines at the same time, and I'm not sure how well that will end hmm. for any of them. Joyce, uh, you know, Thomas Hobbes said life was, mm -hmm. uh, what, nasty, brutish, and short. This campaign is nasty, brutish, and long. There's six months left. What does it tell you? Well, I don't know how nasty it is. I think a lot of it is theatrics, let's face it. Uh, they're positioning themselves um, I think, you know, this is a broader race for really what this party is all about because we've all kind of lost track. Uh, you know, Mr. Polyev started or launched his campaign and there was not, not once the word conservative uh, in his video. That was interesting. He's running for prime minister but not for the conservative party. What does that tell people? 
Uh, I found that interesting. I mean, I think there's a, at least this time some pretty interesting contenders. Uh, and that's really what I'm looking at. Unfortunately, I don't think uh, that they have the room. I don't think that Canadians are really paying that much attention unless you're really mm -hmm. a grassroots conservative and, you know, you, you, you eat that for breakfast, lunch and supper. Adrian, let me go back mm -hmm. to you. It's interesting what's going on in Battleground Ontario. You know, Aaron O'Toole promised he could win Ontario. He couldn't. He lost the job. Uh, Doug Ford's facing an election, the premier there. And man, there he, last week he was signing up, uh, you know, giving money to a car factory beside Justin Trudeau. He's going to announce some kind of childcare deal with Justin Trudeau. He's told his people don't get involved in the conservative race. What is message to federal conservatives that in Ontario, that that critical area, Doug Ford is tacking towards Mr. Trudeau right now? Well, I, it just goes to show you what one needs to do in an election time and who, with whom you need to cozy up with in order for Doug Ford to sort of save his, his left flank, as it were, and yeah. not get that criticism from the NDP and the Liberals, for example, that he didn't get a childcare deal done. So that's where I think that sort of spells out. But look at the timing as well. And that's, um, and you know, as the saying goes, events are, are the ones that overtake yeah. all these sorts of things. As Joyce sort of re uh, referenced with respect to what's going on in Ukraine, and you know, maybe maybe people aren't eat, sleeping and breathing the conservative leadership race, and I understand that, but there is a lens by which they look at the Ukraine situation and perhaps those, someone in that race who may think could, could handle it uh, better than, than uh, Justin Trudeau is, for example. Uh, Steph, uh, the other issue, climate. Does, that, does climate policy, the famed carbon tax, the price on carbon, does that become one of these litmus test issues, not only for the, the candidates, but for the party? Everyone is looking for the Conservatives to form some kind of credible environmental policy and, and frankly I think that includes Conservatives themselves and I think it even includes the Conservatives who would also very proudly champion themselves you know, as, as uh, champions I guess for the oil and gas industry. The problem becomes this carbon tax. The words carbon tax are so polarizing now within Conservative circles that it's almost impossible it seems to have a discussion about what environmental policy could look like in the absence of a carbon tax and whether it's feasible without some kind of price on carbon. And Pierre Polyev and some of his predecessors have really poisoned the well on this debate and I would like to see the Conservatives be able to find a way almost to have an intellectually robust conversation about what a conservative climate policy could look like because I do think the vast majority of Conservatives, at least we're at a point now, they do believe in climate change. They do believe that something needs to change to get emissions down. Joyce, that Jean Charest has been unapologetic about that, the cap and trade uh, premier. He's getting hammered for it though. Uh, yeah, maybe he gets hammered for it now. Look, he's the underdog, or uh, as, as his people like to say, it's a position they're quite comfortable in at the beginning of this race. Look, there's going to be a lot of talk about that uh, because it's an inevitable topic. I, I, I totally agree with Stephanie. You know, you can't, you can't beat about the bush. This is something they will have to tackle. You can't not have one. This is something that, you know, the predecessor, Mr. O'Toole, learned the hard way. Um, you know, he went around his caucus uh, to declare sort of a, a, a climate policy unbeknownst uh, to the people that were sitting in Parliament with him. So right. you can't do that again. That, that is, is, is sentenced to fail. Okay, I got to leave it there. Man, it's going to be a good one. Uh, Adrian Batra, you're home in Saskatchewan, so you're at West. Great to see uh, you today. Joyce and Steph Thank are going to stick with us. Okay, when we come back, NATO's red line. 
What can be on the table at this week's special NATO summit? Is Canada's military too underfunded to give more help to Ukraine? The former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, Andrei Shevchenko, joins us next as a special guest. Stay right here with Question Period. Empty tank. Is there anything left in Canada's military supplies to help Ukraine fight Russia? Late last week, I asked the Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie. She dismissed Canada's military support and record as essentially not a global force. Check this out. We all know that Canada is not a nuclear power. It is not a military power. We're a middle-sized power. And what we're good at is convening and making sure that diplomacy is happening. That comment that we're good at convening appeared to insult many men and women who served in the military. Many former generals spoke up about it, and then she quickly backtracked. Obviously, I, I believe in the armed forces, but I also think that they need to be better equipped, better tooled, and quickly. And I'm very much aware also that other countries have stepped up the defense budget, such as Germany, to face these challenging times, and I think that we have to do more. Minister Jolie's comments come as NATO is set to gather this week in Brussels. The Prime Minister will be there, and there will be a great pressure for Canada to live up to its own promise of spending 2% of its GDP on defence rather than the 1.39% that Canada currently spends. Is that going to happen in an upcoming budget? And more urgently, what else can Canada and NATO do to help Ukraine fight the Russians as the war escalates? To answer all that, the Scrum returns. Joyce Napier, our CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief, is back. So is Stephanie Levitz, reporter with the Toronto Star. And our special guest this round is Andrei Shevchenko, former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada. He joins us from Lviv. Um, good to have everyone back. And Mr. Shevchenko, we hope you and the family are doing well. Um, uh, let's, you know, NATO's meeting, give us an assessment uh, of the war, that what's going on in Ukraine now and, and what Ukraine needs from NATO. Well, I can just say that uh, you cannot stop Russia with projecting weakness. And that is exactly how it has been seen by many people in my part of the world. And uh, speaking of Canada, I do not know exactly what Canada has to offer or what it does not have to offer. But Canada exactly knows what we need and probably better than many other countries because of this Operation Unifier. You have been training our troops since 2015. There is true camaraderie between your men and women in uniforms and ours, and uh, your Canadian folks exactly know what we need. So we expect Canada to be a very strong and vocal ally in this conversation. Jo Joyce, earlier in the program, as you know, I talked to the interim Conservative leader. The Conservatives are backing no-fly zones to protect humanitarian corridors. NATO said that's a no-go zone. What will be on the table? What kind of debates will be on the table in Brussels? Well, I, I don't think that, uh, I think a no-fly zone will remain, uh, there, it will remain a no. Uh, we know that, we've heard uh, NATO allies, we've heard the Secretary General, the President of the United States, Canada as well. Uh, you know, if and until one of the NATO countries is hit, this is not going to happen. No boots on the ground, no jets in the sky. Um, and, and that's and that's final. What what else? I mean, Canada will have to step up. This, if there was ever a time for Canada to step up and to to pay its dues uh, to NATO and to not be, uh, you know, that uh, person that you go to the restaurant with with and and doesn't uh, put out uh, his or her credit card. 
you know, you, you've got to live up to that 2% GDP of defense spending, uh, which Canada has not lived up to. Of the 30 uh, NATO countries, we're way down in the bottom with the, bo with the last five countries. There is a fight, but is it enough? And, and, and as Joyce rightly points out, uh, does Canada, is there, is there another 11 or $12 billion annually in its budget, which would be what is required to hit that 2% GDP goal? Isn't that the question? I mean, we're coming out of a global pandemic, let's not forget, Evan, where weaknesses in government funding at all levels were highly exposed. We were not prepared for the pandemic. We were not prepared for an emergency of that scale, scale and of that magnitude. And what are we learning now? We're learning at a defense level, we are not prepared for this level of existential threat and existential, not even existential, real military uh, combat happening in another part of the world that we might be called upon to participate in. So governments are really good at looking back and saying, oh man, we should have spent the money and oh, this is what happens and oh no, and I guess we'll do better next time. Well, guess what? We're here now. I mean, we've literally run out of ammunition to give the Ukrainians because we, we've given them everything we right. have. So now we've learned a lesson. What we had wasn't enough. And when's it gonna be enough the next time? Yeah, uh, as the defense minister said, we cannot give more ammunition because it will compromise our own operational readiness. So, so I, I go back to you, Mr. Shevchenko. Give us a sense. Everyone's wondering what, you know, the, the, the assessment. Um, are these negotiations going to work? Is, is, is Russia going to escalate first? What's your assessment of, of what we're about to see as NATO convenes? Russia will escalate, and uh, if you're asking about what we feel, we feel that it's not the money which NATO lacks, it's the courage. Moreover, we have a very strong feeling that a direct clash between Russia and NATO is inevitable sooner or later. And I understand there might be quite cynical but practical approach to say, you Ukrainians just get as much blood out of Russia as possible, and then we'll see what we should do about this. It's not going to work that way. Uh, I'm in Lviv right now, and we had a rocket attack on this city with six missiles this morning, but a couple of days ago, the Russians hit NATO training center, which is just 20 kilometers away from the Polish border. So we asked our Polish friends and our NATO friends if those missiles were in the air for another 20 seconds or so, what would you say to your citizens if those missiles hit NATO, hit NATO territory? So we have a feeling that um, it's, it's the courage which is necessary. And the sooner the West and our NATO friends realize that the better is going to be. Andrei Shevchenko, Joyce Napier, Stephanie Levitz, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Andre. always please stay safe uh, and you and your family. We're thinking about you. Um, and all of you, thank you so much for watching. That is Question Period for this week. Hug your loved ones. We will be back here in seven short days. Take good care.